just go out there and do things and make things. Uh, you know, you can you, you can work hard, but you have to be willing to, to change as well, because that's the only way that will anyone can ever get better at anything is by sucking at it for a very long time. Welcome back to Basic Brain Heart, the show where we celebrate and interrogate creatives of all stripes. I am Hannah Camacho. Today on the show, we have an interview with the lovely Aaron Waltke. Aaron quite literally has creativity in his genes. His, I believe it's his great, great, great uncle was Charlie Chaplin, and he's been surrounded by what he calls creative adjacents, people who are just fascinated by creativity and artisans in their own right. And he grew up in the Midwest, and it was really fun to hear his story of how he made it from the Midwest eventually to L.A., where he's now, um, in one sense or another, all nearly show-running the show Troll Hunters, which is well-beloved um, on Netflix. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. It's great for all ages. Um, and he is a uh, passionate storyteller. He's a writer. He's also been involved in the show Kitty, which is a Lego spinoff. And you'll hear him go into a bit more depth on each of those projects currently. But it was really fun. Um, I enjoy it when I don't have to feel like I'm pulling teeth to in an, in an interview to get someone to um, really dive in and talk about their craft very passionately. And Aaron certainly did not disappoint. It was lovely. And, you know, I have to say this was actually a first for me. Um, typically, I'm the one reaching out to different creatives whom I admire and I'm um, looking for folks who would be down with being on the show. But this time was kind of fun because Aaron actually had stumbled across a few episodes of the podcast, namely the Eric Heiser episode, which was actually the one right before this one, as well as the Jared Bush interview. Both Eric and Jared are fantastic writers and, and their uh, episodes have to be a couple of my top favorites. So I was really happy that Aaron had found those and had enjoyed them enough that he reached out uh, to me online. And um, I started looking into who this Aaron was and was, of course, very impressed by um, his involvement in shows that I am very well aware of and uh, I enjoy watching with my kids. So it was really fun. Um, uh, he, he, as he says in the beginning, he was a fan before he was on the show. Before we get on to the interview, I do want to say if you ever have any feedback or perhaps a particular episode really touches you, um, it's really fun for me to hear from the audience. So please feel free to reach out to me. Um, you can actually email me, hannahcamacho at me.com. That sounds like a very egotistical email address, but it's actually the one Apple gave me. Or you can reach out on Twitter at basicbrainheart or even on Instagram at Hannah underscore Camacho. I'd love to hear from you and hear what you think. And of course, if you have any feedback, I'm more than open to how we can improve the show. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Aaron Waltzke. I'm super excited to have you on the show, and and I have to say I think this is the first interview um, where someone's actually listened to the show before they've been on. So that's even more exciting for me. Thanks for making some time. <laughs> yes, I was a fan before I was a guest. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> no, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. Uh, and I know I asked you before we started recording, um, but you were just at the Annies. I was, yes. I was lucky enough to be nominated alongside a lot of really talented artists uh, who I feel extraordinarily blessed to call, you know, my collaborators and friends. 
for Troll Hunters, which just That's came so out exciting. a couple of years ago. Um, unfortunately, we didn't win, but as they say, you know, it's an honor to be nominated, and uh, you know, the free booze and the free food uh, can't be beat. We we lost to Rick and Morty, and there's no shame in that. Uh, you know, that show uh, is quite transformative and brilliant uh, in how it's crafted. So uh, I'm just happy to I, I, I'm happy and, and honored to be uh, you know considered at least a, a colleague as far as nominations go. Absolutely. And I was really excited for um, the breadwinner and Nora. She was actually oh, yeah. on the show a couple of months ago and um, I was super excited. And she made history being the first solo female directed um, animated feature. Well, I guess independent feature to win. That was pretty exciting too. But what a great group. I had so much fun watching it live. Yes, that's, uh, I, I was very excited to, to see that uh, get, get the, uh, the accolades that it did. Um, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant film, and her previous films are also quite heart, oh, heartfelt and touching. I love and, Cartoon Saloons. <laughs> Their work <yeah>. is amazing. <laughs> awesome. Well, before we kind of get into your history, and I'm, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts, even just hearing some of the things you were sharing before we hit record. I know this is going to be a great interview. Um, <laughs> but what are, what are you working on these days? I know you're kind of in the middle of a, maybe a transition phase in your career. Uh, yes, I, uh, I just started as uh, a co-EP and uh, head writer on the new series from Netflix for DreamWorks Animation uh, called Wizards, uh, which is the third installment of the Tales of Arcadia trilogy, which uh, started with Troll Hunters. It's a project uh, with a lot of really great people. It was created by uh, Guillermo del Toro, who, you know, is he was, he was an, a legend. He was an idol of mine. Uh, before he became sort of like a mentor, <laughs> such as it were. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much I can say about it yet. Sure, it's sure. basically a brand new uh, franchise, but it's been a long time in the making, and it is the, the sort of uh, the third chapter in the, uh, in the uh, Troll Hunters franchise, uh, which came out um, at the end of 2016 and was lucky enough to be received very well critically and, and by audience alike. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that, that's what I'm working on at, at present. Um, so, but it's been a, quite a long road <laughs> getting here. Uh, but I'm, I'm just happy to be here. And I try to be grateful uh, in any, uh, you know, any craft that I'm involved in, uh, but especially the fact that I get to work in animation um, and storytelling and in a space where there, there, there are certainly restrictions, but um, the, those restrictions, I think, are minuscule compared to uh, the joy that I can get out of, uh, you know, inventing new stories or, or being able to tell the stories I really want to tell and work on them with really incredible people. That's um, so exciting. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to hear all the juicy details about what kind of what led up to where you are now. Sure. But before we get too much into that, I would love to hear it sound as far as I know, I tried to do research before <laughs> before jumping into interviews, but I believe you grew up in the Midwest, is that correct? I did, yes. I grew up in a small I mean, small by uh by, by LA standards, LA standards, <laughs> but uh, in Indiana, it's considered uh, one of the larger suburbs called Greenwood. Um, yeah, so I was I grew up in Central Indiana, which uh, you know it, it was really interesting because Indiana is 
it's sort of like an in-between state in many ways. It's literally called the crossroads of America because uh, there are highways that cross through it uh, going in every direction uh, on their way to more interesting places. <laughs> so uh, I literally grew up between two cornfields. Like that's not an exaggeration. You know, when I brought my wife back home to, to show her for the first time, she was like, oh, I, I thought you were being metaphorical. But <laughs> literally, uh, you know, I, I remember it was like, uh, I grew up next to a cornfield, and then my my best friend growing up had grew up next to a pine tree farm, and there was this really silly story where, like, you know, I watched. I grew up watching movies and TV with with my friends, and that's just because there's literally nothing to do in Indiana besides just you know talk about Terminator <laughs> and uh, and uh, Ducktales. So, well, all. All we would do is just watch movies and then assume like that was our window on the on the greater world. So one of our favorite films around uh, Christmas time was uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where I remember in our seven year old brains, that was sort of like the roadmap for how holidays were supposed to go. Probably not the intent of the filmmakers, but we thought that was just like the, the bee's knees. So at one point we were like, oh, I guess we're supposed to go out and chop down a Christmas tree as part of the holiday, uh, you know, festivities. And so for Christmas, my friend got like when he was again, we were seven, got like his like my first carpentry set with like this cheap, really dull saw in it. And, stuff. and so we went over to the neighbor's Christmas tree farm and cut down one of their crisp, their pine trees, which they were probably try to sell uh and we did it we were so proud we dragged it back to um my friend's house but then we were like oh crap this is not the movies uh what do we do with this how can we explain this without them finding out that we just like stole a tree so you know being the, the geniuses that we were we decided that it uh oh well we'll just plant this in the garden and act like it just it grew overnight and then say, hey, maybe we should cut that down and put it in the living room. Uh, and we, we tried to subtly hint, like, oh, look at that pine tree that grew outside uh, over breakfast. And, uh, of course, immediately got caught. But, you know, fantastical thinking was sort of uh, being informed by movies and TV probably to an ill degree has been sort of in my pedigree for a long time. I love it. And but then like, did okay. you kind of start noticing around that time that, um, you know, did that, did it ever occur to you that that could actually be a profession telling stories for a living or did it take a little while for, for you to start considering that? You know, it's, it's funny cause it's like, uh, my, my parents are, are, are not, uh, artists in the strictest sense. Uh, you know, they, they have the ways of, of sort of, uh, you know, expressing themselves creatively for sure. Uh, but they, they tend to be more artisans, uh, like my they, they, my dad uh, is a dentist and my mother uh, was an occupational therapist. And, you know, they exp the way they expressed themselves was sort of uh, it, collecting things that they liked, uh, and, among other things. Uh, like my, and they were always very multifaceted and they always made a point to be very well-rounded people. Like, you know, they were always said, like, you, aren't, you are not your job, but that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy what you do and enjoy your life. So they always made a point to just say, like, it doesn't really matter uh, what you do for a living or what you do as long as you do your best doing it. 
So like my, my dad was into model planes. Uh, he also was into rocketry. Uh, he also, uh, you know, collected uh, uh, trains and, and then both my mom and my dad uh, became like amateur jeweler, jewelers where they would go, they would go mining in, uh, in the Appalachian Mountains for uh, gemstones and then they would take, come, take them back and then cut them into gemstones. Uh, uh, you know, properly faceted and then set them into, you know, rings and earrings, necklaces. And, you know, that was just something they did for fun. And eventually it became sort of like a little side business for them. But, you know, for me, my my childhood growing up with them was always very sort of hands-on. So like in terms of what a profession was, I I had a very, probably not like uh, an important sense of it because in the Midwest, it's very, the cost of living is so low and they were, they, you know, I never, we never really wanted for anything. So it was like, uh, I, I was always just given the impression like, oh, Aaron will figure out what he wants to do. And they never really stopped me when I, you know, when I was in, in that same era of, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten when I, when I was out there cutting people's, uh, trees down, doing property. You know, I, uh, my friends and I found uh, his old camcorder, and we just started going out in the backyard, which is something that I, I'm sure a number of your other guests have said was sort of their their entree into um, creativity. But, but like for a child of the the late '80s, like myself, uh, you know, like I feel like the ability to create home movies was like a really formative experience. Now, everyone with their phones or whatever, but for us. It was like, you know, the magic on the screen suddenly being in your hands. I like we, my me and the kids in the neighborhood were all these days equally, uh, you know, uh, uh, creative artists. Uh, we all just couldn't get enough of this sort of magic device that let us, uh, you know, make believe in a way. And then that could we could then show other people. So I just kept we just kept making these short films that barely made any sense. I remember desperately like my my sort of magnum opus was trying to do what really was just a bad indiana jones knockoff <laughs> but at one point we did like a civil war reenactment where i almost burned down my my uh backyard trying to recreate general sherman's raising of the south <laughs> um and it you know it the the short films were just this sort of like experience explosion of unfiltered insanity that I guess you could call sort of creativity, but it was just, it never stopped being fun. Um, and at a certain point I realized, you know, for better or worse, I thought I was really good at it and we never got any bad feedback because I think we were amused when we had, you know, when they had these short films that we would submit to the high school or whatever, where we'd dress up in suits and have lightsaber battles while talking in French or whatever. Um, but you know, it, it it was it was very formative in a way. It, it informed me that like there was never a question of of like what I was going to do for a living because I just felt like you know if I just I, I whatever I do I needed to do I needed to keep that part of me alive. Um, interestingly, when I when I got to high school, you know, I still hadn't really made any decisions as far as like what I wanted to do professionally. Um, but, you know, I, I had shown a knack, like my high school was somewhat progressive and they had like psychology classes and sociology and, as electives. So I had taken some courses in psychology in both of those. And 
I expressed interest in, you know, abnormal psychology and, you know, understanding the theory of mind uh, and very kind of, for lack of a, forgive the pun, heady stuff like that. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I was ready to just kind of sign on. And one of my dad's best friends growing up and still to this day his best friend um, is a psychiatrist. And interestingly, like his, his son didn't have a lot of interest in psychiatry, but he was showing it interest um and my dad you know just trying to be supportive as best he can was like you know what uh you know why don't you get your psychology degree and then you know you just kind of you just well i'll support you up through the phd and then you'll take over my best friend's practice and then your whole 40 years are laid out in front of you and it's all set and good to go because uh, I think that was when I didn't express a lot of interest in being a dentist like him, that was like his best way of trying to find some way. Um, and I actually signed up as my major as being psychology in college. And then I think it was like three weeks before I was supposed to start. Uh, I don't know what it was, but just like this voice in my head. I think, oh, you know what? I think I was sitting at my college, my high school graduation. This voice in my head was saying, you know, I don't know if this is like right exactly right for you. Like there, I, I showed an interest in understanding human personality, but I wasn't sure if, if like becoming a therapist um, was quite the same as what I what really interested me was just human character and I, like under, there's a difference between understanding and predicting human behavior. And sitting in a room with someone, you know, hour after hour trying to work on their specific problems, I was more interested in just like the, the, the huge plethora of, you know, what we consider normal and all the different ways that humanity can express itself. And so I, I came to my parents and I, I basically just said, you know, mom and dad, like, I please don't be mad at me, but I don't know if I want to do psychology i just i i think i want to be a filmmaker i think i want i want to major in like, communications and learn how to become a, to make movies and to their immense credit they just kind of like thought it over blank and like we don't really care what you do uh but you have to promise us that you're going to try your best and do your best to do and like that's not i i know from experience from and from other people's experience that's not a common reaction from parents when you say they want to be, become an artist but my you know i and i give my parents immense credit for be, providing that kind of emotional safety net of like you know even if i fall flat on my face uh, they they're basically giving me a, an an emotional get out of jail free card of saying like you know what we know this is really hard and you may not succeed the way you want to but uh as long as you try your best you're still up you know a, a, a success in our book which was just like you know and you know for better or for worse that that gave me the 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 muster to uh to come out and really give it a go and then i i never really looked back uh i was just actually just chatting with um a friend of mine who was oddly the TA in my college courses, and now he's a writer filmmaker. But uh, he he was saying uh, like he doesn't have a plan B, and neither do I. <laughs> like just kind of like threw ourselves all the way into it, into this like, cycle of, of, of masochism and, and disappointment, but also uh, great highs and successes and joy. Uh, and it's something that you know I think it was. Uh, 
Dostoevsky who said that, you know, a writer uh, doesn't write because he likes to write. It's because he has a demon inside of him that's just forcing him to do it. And, and like, I think that's it's an, as good. As, maybe it sounds better in Russian. I don't know. Uh, but, but it's sort of like just this kind of it's this impulse that you feel compelled to do it. And if I'm not being creative uh, in some way or feeling contributing, uh, even if that project isn't going anywhere, I just feel this, uh, I don't even know if restlessness is the right word, but I, I feel kind of like an inertness. Uh, I, I, for me, uh, the act of working, and to borrow a phrase from uh, Voltaire, to uh, cultivating one's garden, of always just kind of like planting seeds and see what comes of them. That, to me, that's really what living is. Um, and, you know, whether it's, it's writing or whether it's being creative or designing websites or making a sculpture or coming up with a, a marketing strategy, I think that there, if you can always find something that you're, that you're doing, you're creating, you're activate, activating, you're cultivating, that to me is what makes you uh, a success and happy. And that, that's just what kind of drives me. It's the engine that drives me is like, so even if I was a, you know, I, I, even if I wasn't able to like make a full career out of what I do, which I'm as of now, knock on wood, I'm lucky enough to be doing it full time. I feel like I would always be making projects on the side and always creating and just seeing what what could come out the other end. Absolutely. Um, I realized that was a very long winded answer. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good stuff. And there's lots of great anecdotes in there. Did you what uh, university did you decide to attend? So. I wound up going, I did, again, put very little thought into this, and it was probably the worst way to choose a college, which was I went to Indiana University just because my dad went there, and I was like, Dad, yeah, I was like, that sounds good, yeah. I lucked out that Indiana University happens to be, like, one of the better state schools, and, and it's so gigantic. A lot of people are shocked. Like, my wife went to Emerson, which I think her graduating class was, like, 3,000, Whereas my graduating class is like 50,000. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and this, the, uh, it was, it's a, was a really wonderful college because, you know, Indiana on the whole, I think I, I said earlier, it's sort of the middle of things. Uh, it's the middle of the things politically, you know, uh, you know, uh, cons it, it, it is conservative, but also it ha it also tends to have a lot of, uh, compassionate people. So like there's, uh, you know, it flipped for Barack Obama and then flipped back for Trump. And it's like, like it's, <laughs> it's unpredictable. It's just, yeah, it's like a lot of people that are just kind of like very nice, don't like things to change too much, but also have good ethics. <laughs> and but and interestingly, like I grew up in, in, in Indiana, which, you know, was uh, or, sorry, excuse me, in Greenwood, which was very a little bit more on the conservative side. And then uh, Bloomington, Indiana, which is just 45 minutes south of where I grew up. Uh, is very liberal uh, college town. It's sort of like I got to see kind of a microcosm of the country just within a, a you know a one hour radius of my hometown. Um, and any university was great because it was like I got to meet so many other people um, and and take so many interesting courses and things I never would have uh, had a chance to. And because it's one of the little Ivies or what's called one of the little Ivies, where it's sort of like it's not an Ivy League, but because of the funding and the programs that were put in place by people like Herman Wells, uh, you know, who, who brought in a lot of really amazing people in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the 
it has some world-class everything. Like, you know, I got to see, for instance, it has a world-class opera program. So I got to see like world, world-class world magic flute performances from people who went on to be some of the world's preeminent opera singers. But, you know, I was just like in the, in the lunch hall with them, like hanging out. It is this really interesting confluence of, of people and ideas. Like one of my roommates in my dorm was like, is an astrophysicist now. And then, you know, like, I had a chance to really deep dive into eclecticism in a way that uh, I feel really grateful that I may not have been able to do if I had gone to like a traditional art school, which tends to be a lot more focused on on just the craft of you know painting or just filmmaking or just studying film theory. Whereas like I could take a class on you know the the culture of Beethoven and and, and like his life and work and and or, or I could take a class on you know, the, how stars are formed and <laughs> just find out uh, things I didn't know about the world. So that was kind of my approach was very scattershot, just trying to force myself out of my element. And uh, for the first time, I just got to like write sketches. And every week we would take a vote on the on our favorite sketches and cast each other and then perform in front of a group of like 400 drunk college kids. And that is a very tough crowd. Let me tell you. Yes. So like, <laughs> but that being said, it became like this de facto writer's room where it's like, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And so you have to just kind of like evolve and work, play, learn how to write to people's strengths. And, and you know, some maybe you have one guy in the troupe who's really good at playing bullies and another guy who's not a great actor, but he has a really funny way of saying something. And, and that way I, I really learned to collaborate. And I used to, all of my comedy used to be very kind of, sort of quasi-intellectual, you know, like like dropping the word Descartes as if it was like the funniest thing in the world. But um, eventually I realized, you know, there's room for, you know, Cartier, Cartesian theory of mind and fart jokes. Mm. You can <laughs> maybe yes. ideally in the, in the same sketch. Uh, <laughs> that is fantastic. So you kind of started to develop your your flavor of um, entertainment as far as creating it. That's really cool. Did you start to get, once you started to get closer and closer to graduation, did you start, your, did you find yourself panicking at all? Cause I mean, being a Midwesterner originally myself, if I had determined, you know, I want to be a, a professional storyteller, however, whatever that means, but I need to get to either New York or LA to do that. I would feel pretty intimidated in terms of how on earth do I accomplish that? What did you start to do to, to move in that direction when you were in uh, college? Well, you know, I, it's, I, I tried not to think about it mostly. <laughs> That's a good, uh, good strategy. Yeah. I just was like, you know what, if I just keep making stuff, uh, this, it, it, it was an interesting time actually, because, uh, right when I graduated college, which would have been 2006, I suppose, um, they, it was just as this thing called YouTube was starting ah. up, just started. And to me, that seemed like the, the, the ultimate equalizer. Like suddenly I was like, Oh my God, if me and my friends get together and just make the perfect stuff. Then, then, the, then all these movie and TV executives will find it, and they'll call us out to Hollywood, and everything, everything will be great. Uh, so we just started making these comedy sketches, and YouTube was doing like these sketch comedy like uh, um, contests and whatnot. And I've since talked about this period with a number of friends of mine who are now 
all pretty well uh, established in the industry who kind of graduated and, and tried to make a go of it about the same time. And it was like, it was a really weird time in the industry because the internet, as we know, uh, is a huge disruptor in media. Um, so at the time, uh, all the big studios were trying these, re these really bizarro tactics where they were like, hey, what if we decided to make a web series that we would just put on our own website, but give it the budget of like a TV show and see what happened? <laughs> I'm sure we'll make money on that somehow. Uh, so like, my, you know, people who became my friends or some people I knew online or whatever were suddenly just like getting plucked up out of, you know, the sticks, almost like the minor leagues. And then just suddenly be like, all right, here you go. You're a showrunner now. Make whatever you want. And it was, it was insane. Like, like nobody knew how things were going to make money, but they were just like money was being thrown at things. Like every studio had their own digital studio, which I mean, it's kind of going back that way now in a much more conservative way, but it was like, it felt like the wild west. And like, you know, I have a friend who's a very successful, um, uh, showrunner now, but like he got his start at literally as, as part of what originally was an internship program. And then while, after he got selected for it, it suddenly became like just this think tank to create internet stuff at one of the major studios. And so he was paid his first year out here. He was paid for an entire year to basically be in a writer's room. Oh my with goodness. Like no experience whatsoever. But Dream. It was, I know. Right? <laughs> uh, and he was like, I had no business being there, but he wouldn't be able to do what he does now without the that sort of like taking, uh that was happening around that time so uh interestingly enough right after i got out of college uh or right around when i was graduating college i had been doing a lot of work uh with pbs uh i actually had you know and i still do uh love documentary filmmaking and i had aspirations of like you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna write stuff and make short films but i'm also gonna do documentary work and i'll see what what takes me where but i just want to be like Werner Herzog, that's who I want to be. <laughs> like, I want to be able to make like weird documentaries and also weird movies, and, and that was my ideal. Uh, I, uh, and so uh, I made a few documentaries for PBS that were that broadcast to like the greater Midwest, you know, and they were always just trying to take really interesting sort of like Errol Morris esque approaches to like barber shops or. <laughs> Or there was one uh, show that was called Our Town, where once a year we would just take one small town in Indiana and do like sort of a, a year-long deep dive into what make, that makes that town special. And so I did one that was on Bedford, Indiana, which uh, famously was the, the setting for uh, the, the Academy Award-winning film Breaking Away, um, which you know I actually had a personal connection to my grandparents uh, were Bloomington natives and they were actually in that film. So yeah, I had sort of like an interesting, like uh, it was so, in, I, I, sorry, I don't mean to circle back, but like I have in my family, we always, my family were, were not artistic people, but they were always sort of artistic adjacent. And, and, and like my great, great, great uncle is Charlie Chaplin. Uh, no way. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I never, obviously never knew him, uh, and uh, but like my, my great-great-grandmother's name was uh, uh, Maude Chaplin. Uh, that I is awesome. She, it's in your genes, Aaron. <laughs> perhaps. Uh, 
but you know that became that was sort of like the family legacy. So I think in a weird way, uh, uh, you know, and and my, my on the other side of the family, my my grandparents were in in the movies, and they even though they were just like a couple of uh, small town Kentucky folk who had moved north to and whatnot, like my grandfather, uh, you know, he was an inventor. Uh, and actually worked for Indiana University in the psychology lab uh, with like the associates of B.F. Skinner trying to determine behaviorism. Uh, but he also like uh, previously worked at a company called Sarkis Tarzi, which invented the first color uh, television broadcast camera. So like it was all this really interesting like connection. And like my, my, my grandfather also built stuff for NASA that went up on the space shuttle. Uh, you know, so there was like this, this, there was always this kind of sense that like, you know, touches with, with greatness and, and, you know, anybody can, could, could do anything as long as you just kind of put yourself out there. I grew up with all these tales of my, you know, my grandparents, um, you know, we're not rich by any means, but they signed up with this small airline at the time called Ambassador, uh, that in their first year of business, if you signed up with them, uh, if you were willing to kind of be the first people on a plane to go to a new city that they were trying to open up a plane to, you can get a plane tickets there for like 10% of their ticket price. So they wound up going to three quarters of the world. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, they like, she would always tell me stories of like, uh, you know, her and my grandfather being stuck on an iceberg in Alaska or uh, getting machine guns pointed at them in Haiti. Uh, and they took a wrong turn when they were under the, you know, the uh, dictatorship there or, you know, when my my grandmother's, I don't know, I, I guess it's past the statute of limitations. She smuggled back a ceremonial uh, Chinese sword for me from China uh, while it's communism, under communism and that, you know, I had these things like sitting in my room, you know, I had this, this samurai sword sitting, or not, sorry, not samurai sword, but a ceremonial sword uh, hanging on my wall. And it, it was just like, it was all these just sort of like things that were uh, emblematic of like, yeah, you can do anything you want. You just gotta, you ha just have to commit to it. Um, and of course, my, my grandmother always talked about how she was a big movie star and breaking away. Eventually, I looked it up, uh, and sure enough, I mean, she is prominently featured, but she's an extra in it. <laughs> like, but, but it's cool just to be able to see, you know, her alongside, you know, all of the, who all, all, all these people that eventually became huge actors, um, uh, like Daniel Stern and whatnot. And there's my grandmother in the backyard and in the background, you know, waving a flag in every scene. Um, uh, so to get back to your original point, so like, you know, I, I've been working on, you know, documentaries and, and whatnot and trying to find my niche. And, uh, eventually I, I, uh, made a couple short films that, that found their way on YouTube and got some traction that way. Um, and I, I tried to, I worked a little bit on a documentary that, uh, was actually about an AIDS orphanage in Uganda. Uh, but it got to the point where the producer I was working on with it, it was a little, uh, it was a very low budget documentary and it was like, well, in order to do it, you're going to have to pay out of pocket to go to Uganda. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'm a broke college kid. I don't really have the money to pay $5,000 for a plane ticket. Uh, so at that point was when I realized like, you know, uh, maybe the film industry in, the, in Indiana isn't quite what I thought it was. And I, I'm going to have to, if I'm really going to make a go of this, I'm going to have to bite the bullet and move to Los Angeles. Uh, 
And I was lucky enough that just between my my friends who I made short films with and my friends who I made, you know, sketch comedy with, uh, there were a number of them who, like, we had inspired each other and really kind of built each other up uh, that we were like, you know what, I think we can make a go of this. Let's all move out. So uh, even though none of us knew what we were doing, uh, we all had a similar interest and similar passion of just sort of do or die. And we all moved out to LA at more or less the same time. Uh, and just we're all like, you know, sort of broke. Uh, <laughs> broke together. <laughs> yeah. Crammed into like four people. At one point, eight people crammed oh, my goodness. one three-bedroom <laughs> apartment uh, <laughs> in Hollywood, which, you know, a lot of wow. people think of Hollywood as being like, oh, Hollywood, but it's actually kind of run down and yeah. touristy. <laughs> like, yeah, not a place you really want to live. <laughs> yeah, you could spend like $100 and buy free suits in his mm-hmm. next great <laughs> store. With, and then there's like a guy in a dirty kind of Spider-Man outfit hitting you up for money. <laughs> like it's, it's actually not that um, glamorous, but, you know, it was cheap at the time. So there was like a lot of people that were kind of moving out about that time. Uh of course, we. Uh, I I moved out not really having a job or anything, but I knew one person who had moved out the year before me who curiously had a job at a company called National Lampoon. Uh, and you may remember from the beginning of this interview that that was very formative for me. And once again, that I I didn't put a lot of thought into it other than I like those movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I uh, so I went and got an internship with them, which you know. I don't even know if it's legal anymore <laughs> because I wasn't in college, but they were like, yeah, just show up and just show up and, and work with us and, and see what happens. And, you know, uh, thankfully from my time as a documentary filmmaker and my time as a sketch comedy guy, I was able to merge those two uh, sort of skill sets together because they needed somebody who knew how to do this new thing called uh, a web series. Uh, ah. So I was doing web shorts for them uh you know were you uh, writing the shorts or that's the interesting thing i was there uh the the guy who i was who was the head of the department was a gentleman by the name of scott rubin not rudin with a d but with a b rubin um uh who had been in the in the comedy world for a really long time he actually came up in in the stand-up scene in the 80s back when uh, at the height of what he called uh, hook comedy, where it seemed like every comedian had a hook, you know, like oh, there's the unknown comic who comes out with like a bag on his head, <laughs> and and then there's you know Stephen Wright who his whole hook is that he says everything completely dry, and then there's you know, and then there's uh, Howie Mandel who comes out and puts a rubber glove on his head. There's a lot of comedians with things on their heads. Um, but uh, so, but it was really a, a, another eye-opening experience for me because the you know that kind of aesthetic was was a, a bit of a departure from what I had been doing before. But learning how to to tell uh, you know jokes that are just very with a very broad appeal is so important because you need to have as many quivers uh, arrows in your quiver as possible. You know if if you can only write. Wes Anderson knockoff dialogue, then there's not going to be a lot of opportunities for you. But if you can write Wes Anderson as well as you you can write Animal House, then that's that you know. Then suddenly you and, and still put your own voice into it. Then suddenly you're like a hot commodity because anybody can talk say like, hey, I want 
I want this to feel like, you know, uh, High Noon meets Guardians of the Galaxy. And you'd be like, I can write that. Um, <laughs> and hopefully you'd be a fan of both of those. So Nash- at National Lampoon, so we, I, I did a little bit of writing. I was also, like, directing and producing and editing a lot of it, too. So for the first time, I had, <laughs> Everything. like, a, yeah, it was very low budget, <laughs> but... It was another circumstance where we would have like these, uh, you know, fairly well-known comedians and celebrities come in and just want to do some something this newfangled internet thing. Uh, so we would just write a sketch around them and then and then shoot it, and it was sort of like a, a rinky-dink uh, Saturday Night Live kind of operation. And and this was before College Humor had really started doing any of that. So I remember at one point. Uh, someone from College Humor came over to see how we did it, and then inevitably now they, now they and Funny or Die are like you know one of the main producers of that sort of content. Um, but that that was a really interesting, weird first job because eventually you know I, I interned for them for a little bit, and then they were like, "Hey, we clearly you." I, I went to them and said, "Clearly you need somebody who can write and produce and edit. Please hire me." And they were, and they consultants like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> so. So I got hired for basically minimum wage to do that for about a year and a half, and it was it was a very bizarre uh, situation. Uh, and of course, uh, right around that time, just as I felt like I was starting to get my beak wet in the sort of creative ups and downs of, of the, what the, the Hollywood industry is, uh, is when the recession hit. So like that 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 was like. Uh, suddenly, all the other opportunities that were that were out there were just kind of like whoosh, vanished. And anybody who's like who came out around that time can can uh, tell you that you know it was a very weird time where like the uh, suddenly the conventional paths to to success were all kind of like just closed. Yeah, because what jobs were there were being clung to by uh, you know the top brass, and so like and like the higher ups and people who normally would be you know the executive producers were taking whatever a story editor gig, and the story editor gigs were ta- were were st- staying with the staff writers. So suddenly it was just locked up. So it was like basically just hard scrabble, do whatever you can to survive and get your name out there and. And I survived by, you know, I, I had National Lampoon for a little while, and then, and then eventually National Lampoon uh, sort of dissolved uh, because of the, the recession, among other things. Um, uh, but some of my friends who I, I had met there through uh, a, a – National Lampoon had a serious XN radio station, uh, and uh, one of them, who's a really funny comedian named Nadine uh, Rajabi um, – asked if I wanted to come work on reality TV with her. So you know, in a weird way, it was like return to my documentarian roots. <laughs> so I, 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 once again, there's always this common theme of like, I always would kind of go back to studying human behavior and for better or for worse, working in, in reality TV, uh, it really gave me a chance to do just that. You know, uh, I worked at a company called MC Filmworks and then uh, later worked for Dick Clark Productions, uh, but in, in both cases, uh, you know, your your bit. My job was to help sell TV shows and reality shows, and you know, in, in one case, it was like, what 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 am I going to learn about ice sculptors today? So I would watch like thirty hours of footage that they had filmed ice sculptors, and by the end of it, I felt like I knew how to sculpt, you know, uh, ice if I wanted. Um, 
but that was, you know, it, it, it was grueling work and, you know, it was, it was hard sometimes that I, I, uh, especially the so, so-called docudrama, sometimes it's, it, it takes a lot of effort to make a scene interesting when it's just, <laughs> but the, the doing, working in that, that level of narrative, it's sort of like taking a bunch of just moving pieces on a table and trying to construct them in, in the editor's room into what feels like something that has a beginning, middle, and end, uh, just using shots, reaction shots, bits of dialogue. It really surprisingly informed my writing to a, a degree. Um, and all the time while I was doing all of this editing and, and whatnot, I still kept writing you know, my scripts and my, my short films, and I always wanted to work in animation. Uh, and... So I eventually, uh, I think one or, around this time is when I, I met who is now my writing partner, uh, Chad Quant, who is another uh, Indiana University guy who we were just in the same circles. We went going to Comic-Con together, really got, yeah, really got along, and then we were like, hey, you want to write a script together? <laughs> and uh, sure enough, that script uh, that we wrote, uh, it was... Uh, really well received by the people who read it and it landed us our first manager um, or our first representation and it took us and we started going on general meetings and stuff but even then it was you know it's a lot of people think that breaking in is like you know you have that one big break and then you, and then the floodgates open but it's I always tell people it's really not that it's a, it's a lot of little small breaks like you know you know, I, I got to work at National Lampoon, which made me feel seem a little have some street cred because people at least knew what that company was. And I helped, I helped develop shows at Dick Clark, so I kind of knew knew how those kind of uh, gears worked. And then, uh, and while Chad and I were working, you know, we sold a pitch in a room uh, to an animation studio uh, that did uh, a lot of guy type films like live action hybrid like Stuart Little and that um, and so we got to write our first feature and then uh, we you know and then eventually we, there was a company called Mondo Media who we wrote uh, a friend of ours sold a web series to them and he hired us they hired us to be part of the writers room to write some animated episodes of that and then we sold up our own pilot to that same company and you know all taken all together it was just like a bunch of little kind of bits of flotsam and jetsam in our careers that, that kind of rolled together into this snowball that slowly got bigger and bigger and made us seem a little more legitimate with each little project. That's really cool. And it, one, one thing that sounds really interesting to me is that you were willing to stretch yourself beyond just the writing piece. And, you know, I think there are some creatives who want to be an expert at one thing and they don't want to dip their toe in the water, you know, learning other things like editing and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. and so it sounds like the fact that you were willing to be a jack of all trades when needed has served you really well in terms of understanding how a whole show comes together and how it works. And it sounds like, are you, are you eventually interested in show running? Is that something that's interesting to you? Yeah. And that's actually more or less something that I'm doing right now. Uh, like the project that I'm on right now at working with, uh, you know, Guillermo del Toro and Rodrigo Blas and Mark Guggenheim and Chad Hammes and a number of really amazing artists. It's like, in that that case, you know, there's there's we're all creative minds, but like I I'm we're running the room, and it's like the first time as what uh, previously the previous job that we had was working on a show called uh, Unikitty, which was a similar situation, 
where we were in charge of the creative, uh, the writing and the, of the show. Um, and you know, it's, it, it does, it does help knowing all the different components because, uh, any showrunner will tell you that like, it's not just about being the artist with a vision. That's an important part, obviously, but it's also putting on your executive hat and knowing how, knowing how the sausage is made <laughs> and being able to, if something tastes a little off, to know what to change and what to tweak and, and if something needs, needs fixing, how to fix it. And knowing, I think it's good for anybody who is interested in working in, in entertainment to at least try their hand like take an acting class, even if you're not an actor. Take a direct, try to direct something, even if you're not a good director, because you it's so utterly important to understand that you know it's a, such a it's a collaboration, and even if it's not your strengths, you need to learn how to have a parlance with them in their on their terms of like you know what okay so I your goal as a director is to find moments like really incredible moments. So my job as a screenwriter is to create an architecture that allows you to be your best, but also uh, serves uh, my needs, which is to create a coherent story with character growth and arcs. Um, so, and there's a way that those two can meld together really well. Uh, but the only way you would really understand that or know that is if you tried to do it yourself, or, or at least observed or shadowed someone, or were in the mix with someone to where you feel like you could do it yourself. <laughs> just how yes. I felt about, you know, ice sculptures <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, when I was working on reality shows about them. That's fantastic. And before we started recording, um, we were talking a little bit about the evolution of story. And you mentioned the interview with Eric Heiser and Jared Bush. I'd love for you to just talk about story and creating story and what you're passionate about and what you've learned as you've crafted so many stories over these years. Sure. Well, uh, I mean, there's a few basics that I always, when I, I sit down and staring at a blank page, uh, I always, there's a few, not writer's rules, I hesitate to use the word rules because rules are, are often broken, but, uh, you know, I think it's always important to go in with a vision of what excites you about a project, um, you know, at, at least in spirit, because uh, if you're not excited about something and you're just doing it for the money or you're doing it because you think it's what they want or whatever, uh, it's going to probably show in your writing. Um, so what you need to do is you need to kind of like whatever project you're taking on, you need to find a way to make it something that you will be happy with. Um, and and even if that's that uh, the, the original vision of what you think this could be, metamorphosizes over time, uh, you always should retain like a spirit of what that kind of, in, in, in TV screenwriting, I, I always think of it as like a central metaphor. Like in, in Troll Hunters, the story of the show was, you know, a teenage boy finds a magic amulet that helps him separate the, the world of fantasy and trolls and monsters and myth from his high school life. You know, that's the plot. But the central metaphor is, you know, is a, the classic Bill Dung's roman, you know, the coming of age story. It's it's about a teenager who uh, everyone has had that moment in their life where they suddenly feel themselves thrust into it, a really unfamiliar situation. And like, you, you know, as you're su suddenly expected to be an adult with, you know, 
the responsibility of the world weighing down on your shoulders and the rules don't, of adulthood don't seem to make sense. And suddenly it seems like everything is life or death and dire. Sort of like when I was talking about, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like in college, like I feel like that's something everyone can relate to. Um, and I think it's really important to, you know, no matter what shape the show takes on, always you always have to kind of like find you know, what it is that makes that story relatable and makes it exciting to you and, and protect that, that while also listening to other people's uh, input and what they want and then finding ways to sort of add, it in, add on to each other and influence each other and inspire each other. Um, I, you know, in my own experience, like uh, going back to Troll Hunters again, like the, an example of the evolution of a project uh, I, I came on onto it just as it became a TV series, but before that, it was originally uh, it was a a book, and then the and then the book was was a movie, and then and then the movie was uh, was uh, developed for a long time, and then Netflix said, "Hey, we're buying TV shows," and then it became a TV show, and each version ha- was uh, fairly different than the last one. Ultimately, it came down to, uh, like, I came into the process, my writing partner and I both did, uh, and, and with the other writers, had to sit down and say, okay, through all of this, what is this really speaking to us about? What's what's really the, the core strength of this project? What do people see in it, and what do we see in it? Um, and you, what's I think what's important in any time is, like, you know, Projects will evolve, uh, but especially in in media like film and television, you know, it's such a collaboration. You'll have so you'll have like some a vision of what's on the page, but then when it actually is performed, so maybe the, the actor is doing something really interesting with it you never would have thought of. So then you need to lean into their strengths and set them up for for uh, success, and and then maybe they'll they'll be like a reaction shot of like someone you know, looking disappointed when you thought in your head they were going to be, you know, excited. You're like, oh, interesting. Like, what if there was a hesitation there? And it, it inspires you to allow it to breathe and become something new. Films go through the same process, uh, not just with reshoots, but even just in the editing room. You know, like, oh, this, the pace of this, like, if we make it, make this other scene that uh, suddenly feel like it's happening at the same time, uh, and by parallel editing, you know, that, that's how Argo won a, a, an Oscar <laughs> is, be, is because you, they, they allowed the film to be, or the project to become what it wanted to be and what it should have been. And, and you have to allow yourself to discover new things. You can't be pre- like protect your vision, but also you can't be precious. You know, it's a, it's sort of a Epicurean, everything in moderation kind of a thing. You have to, uh, it's almost Zen-like where you have to be, uh, you can't, can't, you have to be like a reed in the river where you bend <laughs> so you don't break. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I, I really love that I'm hearing that you feel like the, the story itself should be somewhat living and breathing throughout the process and not so static and set in stone. And as you've kind of evolved into leadership roles, um, how have you approached it when there are, and I think that conflict can be really healthy and good, especially in a team setting. Um, what has been your approach as you work with so many creatives who may have conflicting opinions or viewpoints about how a story should go down in the end? Well, I mean, there's there's always going to be like 
people who emphasize certain things that they want to see or that the or or they don't want to see in in a show uh, at various levels of of you know importance at, as it were uh, in, in the production. But I ultimately I'm one of those annoying guys who thinks that everybody can can get along. <laughs> uh, I I think that almost always there's a way to satisfy everyone if they're willing to find the common ground first. I think that's the most important thing is like, okay, you might have a vision of this and you might have a vision of that. What, what do we both really want to see in this? And is there a way that we can kind of find a third, a, a third option that satisfies the spirit, not the letter, but the spirit of what we both want to see in it? And the answer is almost always yes. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, a, a somewhat, Annoyingly, I borrowed that from a philosophy course that you know I took in college. Uh, there's a philosopher named Hegel, um, and he created this thing called the Hegelian dialectic, which is uh, he, he believed that truth could be found by taking a thesis and an antithesis, antithesis and uh, and the truth was always somewhere in the middle in what he called the synthesis. And uh, curiously, I find. At, while that may not be always true in all sort of civics, uh, I find creativity inevitably. If you, if you poke around at something long enough, you'll find that that even the most diametrically opposed uh, creatives aren't that far off. Because storytelling is is in our blood. It's in our our collective unconscious, and it's just it's also just in who we are as humanity. Like. Like that's what separates us from the animals in many ways is the ability to transmit information in a way that it is intuitively understandable to other people. And that's why we have legends and folklore and stories that, that all seem to have a very similar shape. And even in modern storytelling, you know, you, you could find the person who himself the least creative person in the world. But I guarantee you, if he's, if he's read books, watched movies or, or, or seen TV shows, uh, he could probably tell you what a beginning, middle, and end of a story is, and what and what feels like you know. Oh, I bet that would happen. I don't know why that happened. <laughs> it, in many ways, I, I I think we're in the most story literate century we've ever been in uh, because it's it's so available to everyone, and you can and everyone is educated in some level on on you know what authenticity and what truth is and and Sure, tastes are very fragmented right now, especially in, in television where there's such a plethora of options out there that you can kind of curate to, to what you like. But the thing that all of those stories share is always, you know, that they have something that feels right in them. And I think if you can find something that all, all the, everyone involved says, whatever else we put in the show, that is right then I think you can usually find a, a way, uh, you know, you can see the forest through the trees. Now, if you were, if you were to head back to your alma mater and you were to speak to um, the graduating class of 2018, maybe they're a class of creatives, um, and you had a chance to share some words of encouragement and or edification with them, what might be some of the things you would share as they're getting ready to head out into the workforce and try to make it in various different creative disciplines. Sure. Well, I mean, what I would say is like, just go out there and do things and make things. 
uh, you know, you can you, you can work hard, but you have to be willing to, to change as well, because mm. that's the only way that will anyone can ever get better at anything is by sucking at it for a very long time. <laughs> I mean, we can't all be Mozart, you know, playing, inventing cantata, cantatas at seven years old and playing for emperors. Uh, and most people aren't. Uh, it, it's really a game, a game of uh, collaborating with uh, people who share your interests and ideally are more talented than you, but somehow you've tricked them into believing in your talents as well. Um, and then, you know, always try to learn. Always try to, to find something new, a new way to push yourself and grow. Uh, take chances and put yourself into scary situations because uh, th that's the only way that in that sort of uh, chaos that you can start to make a new order for yourself and like, you know, create new opportunities for yourself. Um, and, you know, uh, I would say find your voice, um, you know, figure out what you believe in challenge yourself, question yourself, because you never know uh, every villain is the hero of their own story, and you never know what the person on the other side of the table is thinking or worried about. And uh, inevitably, there will be some something that you, what, if you can't at least agree on something, you might at least be able to understand each other, and maybe the world could be a little better for <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it so much. Uh, I've kept you for more than an hour now. Um, so I'm going to let you go here. But before we do, um, I want to thank you for stopping by the show and ask if there's anything that you'd like to plug or where people can find you if they're interested in keeping up with what you're doing. Well, um, you can find me at my at information that I uh, update about myself occasionally on my website, which is just my name, AaronWalkie.com. Uh, the last show I, I just worked on, uh, called Unikitty, which is a spinoff of the Lego movie uh, for Warner Brothers, uh, is on, airing on Cartoon Network now. Uh, so check that, that out. And then uh, Troll Hunters is currently on Netflix. We just released our second season um, about a month ago. And, you know, uh, just stay excited. It's very and, exciting. You know, it's, it, uh, it's been a really fun ride working in, in, in animation with people that I uh, deeply respect and, mm. and I, I hope to keep working in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's looking good for you, so that, that's awesome. Sure. Thank you so much, Aaron. This has been fantastic. Sure, thank you so much for <laughs>